Ultrasound Gel Podcast. Hello and welcome back to the Ultrasound Gel Podcast. I'm Mike Pratt and today joined by Jalen Avila. How you doing, Jalen? I'm doing great. So happy to see you all the way from California to Ohio. What are we going to talk about today? I'm, I'm excited. Today, we have a very interesting idea on the docket regarding some vascular waveforms for heart failure, a kind of crazy idea. But before we get to that, I have to ask you about this new sign I heard about, something called the bow and arrow sign. Can you talk us through what is that? Yes. Uh, so in case you didn't know, Mike, I mean, we all know this. I'm really surprised that you don't know this. Um, this is the sign of a RV pacemaker perforation into the RV free wall. I'm a little disappointed in you that you don't know what that is already. feel like you should have learned that in residency. I'm obviously joking. I've never heard of this and so hadn't the authors because they just like made it up for this one thing. The image looked pretty cool. I definitely like check it out if you uh, want to. So what had happened was is there was an elderly woman who presented with shortness breath, chest pain, hypotension about a month after a pacemaker was placed. And I don't know about you, but right off the bat, I'm thinking, you know, pericardial effusion, right? The patient did have that pericardial effusion with tamponade. They did a pericardiocentesis. The patient got better, but then the effusion kept reaccumulating. They looked again and they found that the pacemaker lead that they're calling the arrow was passing through the RV apex. And then at that point, it curved like a bow. So that's like the bow and arrow, I guess, I guess. The pacemaker, I mean, they, they found it. The patient went to surgery, but unfortunately, the patient expired. So I, I guess, like, to me, it's just, I don't know, like, I like calling things signs. But also, what if you just said what they were? What if you just, instead of making it a sign, you just say, like, this is a pacemaker wire perforating the RV free wall? Right. Like a pacemaker wire sign. Or just a pacemaker wire in the RV. <laughs> just what it is. What is it? It's a pacemaker wire in the RV. It doesn't have to have a special sign. I'm joking with you. I agree. Sometimes these signs can be a, a bit too much, but it is an interesting case. Check out those images. Now onto our main course. This one is titled Role of the Femoral Vein Doppler in Acute Heart Failure Patients. Results from a prospective multicentric study in Ravista Clinica Española, April 2023. Jalen, did you read this in Spanish? I I know you are pretty fluent. I am. I'm like 100% English and then like 85% Spanish. So like to get things through things quickly, I typically, if I have the choice, I'll read it in, in English 100%. But if you want me to, Mike, should we stop the recording so I can read it through in Spanish? Okay, we just we just stopped and uh, Jalen Jalen read it in Spanish and now we're coming back. All right, we're ready to go. I actually like love this topic in general, just heart failure, because it's it's a very useful and fascinating topic. Anytime that we identify ways to kind of help us, I'm excited. Now, this and just like with any studies, anytime that we talk about stuff, anytime that we see published studies, we are not implying, nor do we think the authors are implying that this should necessarily replace anything else, but that it is a tool in your quiver or an arrow in your toolbox. It's, a, it's something that you can use if you need to, to help push you one way or the other. Now with heart failure, I mean, most of the time I'm doing lung, heart, plus or minus IVC, but 
the thought here is like, what if we looked at the femoral vein? Because if they have, I mean, people don't usually often, patients are admitted with chronic heart failure, right? Often. And they're going to have elevated CVP. That elevated CVP is going to transmit down to the rest of the veins. The femoral vein is considered one of the central veins. You have valves that are like just open, right? Because the valves are just going to stay open because that's the way that blood's going to flow. And if blood's not really flowing, they just kind of like stay stuck open. And if that's the case, if, if you imagine just like a, a continuous like tunnel, heart movement will be transmitted down in that situation to the femoral vein. So you, you basically can look for things like regular venous flow or pulsatility right? And if you're seeing pulsatility, that likely is indicative of a high CVP, which in the right clinical setting would lead you to be more likely to diagnose somebody with heart failure. So that's the whole kind of like premise of this. Now, this is great for point of care providers for multiple reasons. The first one is that they, this study, which we'll talk about a little bit more in depth, they looked at a bunch of different kind of markers. They looked at findings for pulmonary hypertension. And I'm actually super into this stuff right now, like looking at the RA size, I'm looking at the RV outflow acceleration time, pulmonary regurg velocity, a bunch of cool stuff. They obviously looked at systolic function of the heart as well, um, and then looked at the IVC. They did a pretty comprehensive echo, and then they looked at a femoral vein Doppler, the pulse wave Doppler, as like a one thing to compare it to those other findings. And I like this because, again, it's an extra thing, but I feel like asking a point-of-care provider, like, hey, like, calculate the RV outflow acceleration time. Like, most of us, like, are not going to do that or even have the ability to do that, but most of us can find the femoral vein and can put pulse wave Doppler in the femoral Vein. And it's really reminiscent of Vexus, isn't it? I mean, that's what it reminded me of. We've covered the Venus excess ultrasound score on previous podcasts, and that is a great way to get an idea of the kind of backloading of venous congestion in volume overloaded patients by looking at the Doppler wave flow through various intra-abdominal organs. And this is a kind of similar principle. We're looking at the blood flow to this time to the vein, and we're seeing that reflect the pressure in the heart. So kind of a similarity there in what's going on. So this study in particular asks the question, what's the association between pulse wave Doppler of the common femoral vein and some of those other echocardiographic measures of right heart dysfunction? So the IVC, tricuspid regurgitation, TAPSI, and then a bunch of measurements for pulmonary hypertension. And this was performed at a tertiary hospital and a secondary hospital in Spain. They included patients that were admitted with the diagnosis of acute heart failure. And it seems they also had to have an elevated NT pro BNP. The main exclusion to recognize is they excluded hemodynamically unstable patients on vasoactive drugs or patients that were non-invasively ventilated, because obviously those things can affect what's going on with your vasculature. And I liked how they did this prospective observational. The patients were admitted to the hospital. They figured out they had heart failure and they had to do the ultrasound within 24 hours of admission. And we'll talk about what that ultrasound was comprised of, but it was pretty complex. And then at the time of discharge, they also took another look at the IVC and the common femoral vein pulse wave Doppler to see if anything changed from when they got there, they got treated, and then when they left. They were looking at correlations here. So they're mainly wanted to find the association of that pulse wave Doppler to the echocardiographic parameters that we discussed of RV dysfunction. And they were also sometimes calculating some ROC analyses for this. Honestly, there's a lot of data here. We tried to sort through it for you so we could highlight the main findings of this study. Absolutely. And I would, I mean, if you really want to like understand the nuances of the study, please read it because it's, it's a great, I, I think it's a great study. Now, 
The people who were performing these ultrasounds is always relevant because especially when you get into some of these more high-end, complicated measurements, you want to know how much training did it take to get there. And these were doctors with several years of experience in both general ultrasound and point-of-care cardiac ultrasound, even accredited by the Spanish Society of Echocardioscopy. And I was intrigued by that cardioscopy. So what did they do? Can you walk us through some of these scans? Because there was a lot there. Yeah, it's a lot. So what they did was they looked at all the things that we kind of already talked about. They looked at the IVC. They looked for greater than two centimeters at the end of expiration with collapsibility greater than 50% with forced inspiration or 20% in calm expiration, which I kind of like. There's like different ways that you can like look at it. And there's different, I guess, differences in what people measure in the literature. Like sometimes it's just a sniff. Sometimes it's actually like there's a few studies where they actually like put a device in the patient's mouth to measure the exact like inspiratory force. Some places say deep respiration, other places say regular respiration. So I like that they kind of had differences for both of those. They also looked at, of course, the pulse wave Doppler of the common femoral vein. Um, they did that with a patient supine. They appropriately so first ruled out a DVT, by, you know, checking for collapsibility there, compressibility. Then they viewed it in the long axis or short, and then they used the pulse wave Doppler kind of gate, place it just above above the greater saphenous entrance. Just, uh, I guess, cephalad to that. They looked for, they basically talked about a few different things. They looked at, is it normal, which means no uh, pulsatility, like a flat venous wave, which is what you see in peripheral small veins. They looked for uh, pulsatility, a clear waveform of pulsatility, or pulsatility with retrograde flow, which they de defined as greater than five centimeters per second in the wrong direction. And then they looked for respiratory phasicity. So it was either present or it was absent. With regards to the echo, they looked at systolic function, number one. And then number two, they looked at the pulmonary hypertension probability, which is basically looking for abnormalities of the right heart. So they looked at things like the right atrial size. They looked at the RV to LV ratio, if there was flattening of the septum. They looked for an enlarged pulmonary artery diameter, which is, of course, like makes sense in pulmonary hypertension. As I mentioned in the beginning, RV outflow acceleration time, which I love this, by the way. This is like fun to find. Pulmonary regurgitation velocity. Um, which is honestly not that hard to find. And then tricuspid regurge, and they and they defined it as mild, moderate, or severe based on the area of regurgitation into the right atrium, which is, this is all in the cardiology literature as far as how to do it. It's interesting that tricuspid regurge jet is like the uh, one of the ones that you look at based off of its size, size like area in general, right? Because you might actually have a right atrium that is a massive right atrium. And then you see like a bit of regurge flow that looks small relative to the massive right atrium, but when we actually measure the area of the regurgitant jet, it's actually huge as well. There's no other regurgitation that does it that way. So I kind of like that. All the other regurgitations do it based off of correlation with the chamber in which the regurgitation is happening. And then with tricuspid regurg, it's the one that's different. And so I, I kind of like that they talked about this there. Yeah, and you'll notice a lot of right-sided measurements. So I just want to emphasize again, this is a really specific question that they're asking in a particular population of heart failure patients because they're trying to correlate this venous waveform of the common femoral vein with a lot of these right-sided functioning measurements in heart failure patients. So a lot of times in heart failure, we're just looking at the lungs for acute exacerbations or we're just maybe we're trying to diagnose them by looking at their systolic or diastolic function on the left ventricle. Their particular angle they're trying to take here is correlating this with the right-sided function in these heart failure patients. So let's take a look at what they found. 
74 patients that they had. And on all of those, except for 10, they were able to get the admission ultrasounds as well as the discharge ultrasounds. And that's just because, unfortunately, 10 patients expired in the interim. So really what they had was 138 evaluations to look at. A little bit about these folks. They had a mean age of 79.5, 51.4% women. High percentage of heart failure in this population. That makes sense since they were diagnosed for heart failure. Of note, 52.7% had a history of pulmonary hypertension, which is relevant because they're measuring a lot of right-sided things. As we go through this data, they're looking at correlations between the different things that could happen with your common femoral vein in terms of, is it just pulsatile or is it retrograde or is there no respiratory phasicity? Remember those four things that Jalen mentioned. So each of those variables, as well as all the like 90 variables they looked at for the heart. So of those, we can draw what was strongly correlated and then what was less strongly correlated. So the strongest correlation was actually an IVC greater than two and having pulsatility in that common femoral vein. Another pretty strong one was the IVC greater than two and having no respiratory phasicity in that vein. And then a little bit weaker than that, but still considered a strong correlation would be having a high probability of pulmonary hypertension and pulsatility in that common femoral vein. You with me so far? Yes, I am. I mean, it's a lot of words, but it all, honestly, it all kind of like, kind of makes sense, you know? Yeah. And then some other things that they noticed that were correlated to a lesser degree, we're talking about R's of in like 0.4 to 0.5 range now. So IVC being large and retrograde flow, probability of hypertension with either retrograde flow or absence of respiratory phasicity and severe tricuspid regurgitation and retrograde flow. So it's sometimes when I look at all these correlations, I, I just think, what does that mean? Like, how, what, how can I apply that? What does that do for me? And it's, it is sometimes fuzzy. So they actually put the data into a diagnostic performance as well. And if you look at the IVC, which remember I said that was the highest correlated. If you put that into an area under the curve, it's actually 0.931, really high area under the curve for that common femoral vein predicting a large poorly collapsible IVC. So that ends up being a 95% sensitivity, 90% specificity, and an odds ratio of, get this, 211 pretty decent. I feel like that's good enough to like rule it in. (laughs) (laughs) I think so. Usually. Yeah. So that's sorting through all their data. Like I said, we did a lot of chopping this up and trying to figure out what is the, the most relevant for you to know. So there was certainly a lot of other stuff that you can read while you're in there. And one of the points the authors made was that if you see normal flow, normal continuous venous waveform in the common femoral vein, that also has a high negative predictive value for a depressed tapsy. To me, like when you're looking at all these, like so many correlations in there, when you find like these one or two here, it's almost not as important as the overall findings that yes, the waveforms in this vein do correlate with some of these measurements. I'm on board with that as well. And like one thing that we also have to like kind of understand is that the test, so like IVC correlating with like the amount of pulmonary pressure, TAPC coordinating with the amount of pulmonary pressures, all of those have like kind of like, they're not a hundred percent, right? And so these numbers, even like the moderate correlations, to me, they're they're good enough to, to maybe nudge me a little more in one direction or the other. 
But the big take home here, as far as like results, is it correlates with the, with the IVC, which that has been shown to correlate with the CVP, which I'm happy about. Because honestly, sometimes like we can't even find the IVC. I know that we talk about, you know, in the uh, the subcostal window, we talk about like, oh, we can just look through the liver, but there's a problem with that. And that's the fact that the IVC, and this is something that Rory Spiegel actually alerted me to. And it was one of those things where I was like, oh my God, like all this time, like I had no idea that this was a thing. The IVC doesn't collapse in a like perfectly or cylindrical way. It tends to collapse more in the AP than it does in the transverse diameter. So if you look at it in the long axis through the liver, you're not, you might not be seeing its full, like the most accurate finding of its collapsibility. And then if you turn it into the short axis, when you're looking at through the liver, now you're looking at two different areas as the patient breathes. So you can't really get good kind of values that way. So I like that there's excellent. Shout out to looking at the IVC in two dimensions. That seems to be the best way to go. Just look at everything. So some of the strengths of this study that I thought were that it was great. They had prospective data with a specific population, and they concurrently were evaluating both the echocardiographic and the venous factors. This was a really interesting novel idea, and they pretty thoroughly tested it by doing all these correlations. Some of the limitations I thought of were that the definition of pulsatile could be a little bit more clear because there's definitely degrees of pulsatility. And the way that they had it set up, it was pretty subjective. And you could kind of imagine a very subtle pulsatility. Maybe that would go unnoticed. Unfortunately, what would have helped this was an inter-observer agreement. Anytime that you have a pretty novel test, it's great to make sure that people agree on it. And they did not have that in this study, which would have been nice, but that's okay. That's okay. Other things, a lot of their population had tricuspid regurgitation, like 95% of their population. That could definitely affect a lot of these findings. These were all heart failure patients. So keep in mind, although you may be interested in trying to apply some of this information to other causes of pulmonary hypertension, like maybe a pulmonary embolism, we don't actually know if that works yet. So the authors do cite some interesting work that shows it may work. Rather, we don't know based on this data. So I think as we get down to the end, what we always ask is, how are you going to use this? Is it valuable? And for this study, I'm not quite sure. Maybe this is a quick way to help you guide your therapy and heart failure patients. It really comes down to how much you're using that IVC to guide your therapy already. Because remember, we're correlating this common femoral vein Doppler with the IVC. So if you were not caring about the IVC already or caring about any of those right-sided indicators, then this is not going to change your practice. This is not going to be that useful to you. And I can already anticipate some of the critics. I know there's some people out there who are critical of these somewhat esoteric ultrasound topics saying like this is a waste of everybody's time. But I think that in some populations, especially in people that are treating a lot of heart failure, perhaps in the ICUs or on heart failure units, and for the rest of us, maybe this is just one more tool that we can keep in mind as we go about our practice. To summarize this article, this was a prospective study of 74 patients admitted with acute heart failure, and they found that there was a correlation between abnormal common femoral vein Doppler flow and echocardiographic measures of right heart dysfunction. Specifically, the strongest correlation of 0.831 was seen between a large IVC and pulsatile flow on the common femoral vein. So the take-home points are that pulsatility in the common femoral vein is strongly associated with the IVC size in patients in acute heart failure. 
Number two point is it is unclear how this extends to other populations of interest. And thirdly, more research is needed on how this might help in management of these patients. Thanks to these authors for doing a wonderful job putting this together. And thank you, audience member, because we always appreciate you listening. And if you would like some more resources about this article, please go to ultrasoundgel.org and check out the show notes there. Until then, we will talk to you later. Bye. Great to be here. And I can't wait for the next one. More. 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 I could go either way, but I might switch over to calling it echocardioscopy. <laughs> yeah, I like that too. <laughs>